Welcome to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, a podcast about those life-altering experiences that shape who we are today and those times when we were not totally fine. I'm your host, Tiffany Philippou, and I've written a memoir, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest who'll tell me their story about a time that they pretended to be totally fine. I know what it's like to pretend to be okay, and that's what my book is about. After my boyfriend Richard died by suicide, I spent most of my 20s pretending that this never happened. I know that it's not just what happens to us, but the stigma we feel and how we suppress it that's the real problem. So here's why we're having these conversations, to quiet the shame monster and to remind us that we're not alone. People think that living in, in a big city, how could you possibly be lonely? You're surrounded by people at all times. Even even when you're on the tube and even if they're strangers, you're never really by yourself. But sometimes that is the moment at which you can feel the loneliest. And, and another paradox is like, um, I want people to consume it and I've created it for public consumption. But when people criticise it, I'm like, hey, that's my life. I can't be kind of hovering over people with a pen, underlining the key messages for them and saying, no, no, wait, actually, <laughs> um, this is this is uh, what you should be focusing on. So yeah, you have to let go. Yes, um, and, and yeah, that's something I'm pretending to be fine about right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> Today I'm joined by author and award-winning art journalist Chloe Ashby. Since graduating from the Courtauld Institute of Art, she's written for publications such as the TLS, Guardian, FT Life and Arts, Spectator and Freeze. And her debut novel, Wet Paint, which I've had the pleasure of reading, has just come out. Wet Paint tells the story of 26-year-old Eve navigating her 20s while also running from her grief after the death of her best friend Grace. In the book, Eve also regularly visits a Manet, pa- Manet painting, and Chloe recently wrote in a piece about how she saw echoes of her own life in Manet's Weary Barmaid. Modern life is strange and unpredictable. The daily grind is hard. Cities are lonely as well as lavish. Gender relations are precarious. Life is a puzzle each of us is trying to piece together, and we can't always get it right. Once I understood that, I felt a part of the crowd and still separate. Welcome to the show, Chloe. Thank you, Tiffany. Uh, and thank you for that very generous and lovely introduction. I'm not used to this. <laughs> well, absolute pleasure. Thank you for your book. How's it all going? It's just come out. What's it like to have it finally birthed and in the world? Mm, yes. Um, so it was published just last week um, and it has been it's been really brilliant. Um, very surreal. I mean, I had a, a lovely publication day. I woke up to a very nice review, had a, a very strange experience of um, doing a two or three minute segment on a radio in my dressing gown because I wasn't expecting it with sopping wet hair, having just got out of the shower. Uh, so that was a surprise. And then just visiting bookshops and meeting some of the brilliant booksellers who, as you know, are kind of crucial to a book's life. Um, so it's been great. Uh, I, I had sort of been warned in advance that it can be a kind of strange and discombobulating time. And I've 
I've been trying my hardest to not spend too much time on social media because I think time whizzes always and when you are on Twitter and on Instagram all day long you know watching notifications come in your day just disappears so I've been trying to kind of soak it all up as best I can. Uh, yes, I really relate to that. Actually, the first couple of weeks of publication, there's there's enough of a drip feed of notifications to keep you scrolling, but it's not actually that productive to kind of sit there all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, I think I'm a, I'm very much aware that those notifications, you know, it's going to peter out. So <laughs> I don't I don't want to get too used to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, before we get into your story, um, I also just wanted to say how much I loved wet paint. Um, and I was just reading it and I was just seeing, I was just seeing it through the lens of this is a story of Eve pretending to be fine. Um, and you, I've seen you talk about how you yourself say she's a character who would always say she's fine. So it's a very on brand, on brand story for the, for the podcast. Um, that's not really a question. It's just a statement. But yeah, is that fair? Or is it kind of just like, I was just reading it being Definitely. like, this is literally about pretending to be fine. Is that, is that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, even on the proof copy, I think the quote that the designer pulled out to put on it was Eve saying, you know, he asked me how I am. I tell him I'm fine. Though maybe my version of fine isn't always the same as everyone else's. Um, and yes, she is absolutely the kind of person who, if you asked how she was, she would say, yeah, fine, everything's all right, everything's okay. And she has been kind of doing that for the past few years and scraping along and relying on various small routines. But beneath it all, she is grappling with grief. And her way of dealing with that is just by keeping everything and everyone at arm's length. Uh, and as always with these things, there are there are there are sort of painful memories that she can't escape, and yeah, eventually it all catches up with her. So it it was funny, really, because it wasn't until I had finished writing the book that I realised it was, I suppose, essentially about mental health among other things. But when I was writing, I was kind of putting into words thoughts and feelings that I had had in my early 20s, um, well, sort of early to mid 20s, really. But I was kind of, when I was writing Eve Sad Spells, I thought about how I'd felt in the past. And she is one who, you know, definitely she uses humour as a coping mechanism. So I think it's very easy for my book to end up, when I describe it, for it to sound just quite sad and dark. But I don't know, Tiffany, I hope it's also... It's funny, I hope, too. <laughs> There's some light Def in there. Um, no, definitely. I found it really enjoyable. And people I hesitate to tell me that they found my book enjoyable because of the subject matter. <laughs> but So I've been reflecting on this a lot. But actually, a lot of the best work does deal with really serious issues in a joyful manner. And no, it's super readable, super enjoyable. Um, I just And the way you captured young the experience of young grief there was details around like remembering grace's birthday like i think that's not talked about enough like there's all these details that made me feel which again this is why we read but made me feel very seen about my own experience and my own experience of the 20s so yeah i think i read it in two or three sittings as well it was a very um it was, it was really yeah as i said a great read and just really covered some yeah serious topics with humor for sure 
Oh, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. And yeah, I think especially with those, because the book is kind of peppered with flashbacks um, that, that look back to even Grace's time together. Grace was her best friend who died. And and I think I really wanted with those to show the small everyday things as well as the big things, because, you know, you don't you don't just miss the momentous occasions with friends with 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 people who have died you it's those little silly things I think that often you think about and they can be sparked so randomly when you're walking down the street and you see or you you hear or even you smell um something maybe so yeah it was something I really wanted to get across so it's really great to hear that it was um relatable and kind of rang true yeah, absolutely. I mean, before we get on to your experience, I was also curious, like how the story came to be. Did you always set out to write a story of this nature? Did it kind of come to be like, yeah, how did it come to be? Mm. So it really started with, there were kind of two two starting points. One, I sat down and this voice just kind of came to me and it was a very kind of spiky kind of crackly voice and it belonged to a young woman who was restless and detached and a little bit weird in kind of a wonderful way <laughs> um and that was eve and she was you know the book has gone through so many iterations but eve was eve from the beginning uh, which I think is why partly now she feels so real to me. And then the other thing on my mind from the start was this image that you mentioned in the introduction, which is Manet's a bar, a bar at the Folie Bergère. And for anyone who isn't familiar, the painting shows a young woman who is standing behind a bar. There's all these kind of lush objects on the counter. And then behind her is this vast gold-framed mirror and reflected in the mirror, you can see this blurry crowd who are kind of just going about that evening, having having fun. And then the barmaid is almost high definition. She's really hyper-realized. And there's just always been something about her face that has fascinated me because you can't tell what she's thinking. And she could be sad or maybe bored um, at the end of a really long, tiring shift. Um but yeah, there was something about her stranded behind the bar, alienated and on her own. And she's sort of the object of the male gaze. There's a there's a sort of slippery kind of um, man standing opposite watching her. Um, and her and Eve, there was just a connection between the two from the start and the book sort of evolved from there. Oh, I love that. And I was also... My final question was around, you've dedicated your career to art and it's such an amazing backdrop in the book. Why art? Mm, big question, Tiffany. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I studied art history um, and I think that came down to the fact that I, you know, at school, my two favourite subjects were English and art and studying art history was kind of a way of marrying the two. And... And then, then it was interesting when I graduated, I think I, I worried that I was putting myself in a niche and I thought, no, you know, I need to, I need to write about more varied things. And so I ended up at a, a magazine that, editing a magazine that, um, you know, covers everything from design to politics to business. 
that everything I wrote, I would smuggle art into it. Um, and I think for me, I, I am a very visual person. I think I like to have that visual hook, you know, something to, to um, clutch onto. And yeah, I guess also not just art, but when I'm wandering around, I'm always looking, I'm always kind of thinking about the appearances and the way that things are, you know, we see things, we see each other, we want to be seen. Um, so yeah, it's always, it's always sort of been there. And I don't know whether it will always be a part of my fiction writing, but I've, I'm currently working on my second novel and it's definitely slipped in there somehow too. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll have to kind of watch this space to see if it continues. <laughs> Oh, well, good luck with the second novel. I'm excited to read that one there. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let's get into your story if you're ready to enter the, the space. Um, okay, so what is the experience uh, that changed you? So the experience that I am going to talk about today is my time at university, which you know, is this sort of time that is associated with coming of age. And, and I think, you know, that it that is true. Um, But it's also a really strange and unpredictable period. I would, I can't speak for anyone else, but definitely in my life, um, you know, until you go to university or until you leave school, so you don't go to university, your life has pretty much been settled. um, And, you know, it's pretty much not up to you where you where you turn up in September and, you know, what you do for that year. And when you get to university, everything is sort of thrown up in the air. And I think the expectation is that you'll just catch all of those little pieces that are flying around and everything will slot in perfectly. And it just didn't happen for me. Um, I think I have always been someone who... And I still am to a degree. I'd like to say I, I've um, I've mellowed, but I think I'm still like this. You know, I've I've always liked to have uh, to use the cliche my ducks in a row and to kind of be prepared. Um, and there's just a lot of uncertainty when you when you reach university. So it's built up to be this sort of brilliant, fantastic time, and and it really was for me in many ways. I. I kind of want to stress that, that I, I did have a great university experience, but also come second year, Christmas of second year, I was struggling with depression, most of all, and also disordered eating and, you know, not having the time that I thought I would have. And tell us a bit more about the context. So what sort of person were you entering university? What kind of university you went to? Because we were talking before about how um you when you were reading my book how different my university sounded to your university so can you paint us a bit of a picture um of what yeah put us in the place of your university so we can yes yeah so um I will actually just tell this as yesterday Tiffany and I were laughing because I I was saying to her that I read um fairly early on in her book she talks about her sister coming I hope this is all right Tiffany now I'm just talking about your book oh yes no please Um, do (laughs) (laughs) that you mentioned your sister coming to visit you um 
in Bristol and you go to, I think it's Vodka Revs and you, you, you and your friends are kind of working your way through the drinks menu and everything's a pound and your sister turns up and says, I'd like a glass of wine. Um, and I remember going to visit a friend, uh, this friend will remember it too, uh, who was studying at Newcastle and I just had a, I mean, I didn't, I didn't ask for a glass of wine, but I should have done. Instead, I tried to kind of keep up with her and did not go well. Because, so I, I studied at the Courtauld Institute of Art. Um, so, you know, if anyone's read Wet Paint, you'll know that um, the gallery just across the way is where Eve visits once a week and where she goes to see the Manning painting. Um, and the Courtauld was brilliant. It really was. I mean, to, I was studying art history and to be in the middle of London, surrounded by galleries and museums, it I couldn't really have been in a better place. Um, and what was quite nice about it is that uh, my year group, so I was in a year of 55 people, and it was almost like a little bubble within this great big city. So I I had kind of come to London. I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Cambridgeshire, and I had always kind of done well in school I'd always worked very hard I've always kind of been I guess I've, I've always been quite a high achiever um and not wanting to let anything slip and I think you get to university and there are so many plates you're trying to spin at once because for me it was still very important to keep up the kind of academic side so I was working as much as I could um I was also thinking already about what was coming what would what might come after university so I was trying to you know build up work experience and stuff like that um and on top of that I was trying to make friends and uh to be fun and have fun um meeting new people I I was at the same school from the age of four to 18 well a sort of you know high school version of the same school and I remember um when I got to university, the after my first night, I woke up in the morning and I remember texting my mum and saying, okay, um, I've wedged my door open. What do I do now? You know, it's just, you're sort of thrown into this totally new environment. Um, and also I think just being, studying in London is quite a different experience from it's, it's, it's a certain kind of university experience and initially it wasn't something that I particularly wanted um, and it was only after visiting the Courtauld and speaking to professors there and meeting other people um, that I thought no you know what this is this is where I should go this if I if this subject I'm doing this is the place to be and at that point I did take a year out because I thought because there's no way I can go straight from the countryside to to living in the middle I mean our, our halls were on the corner of the Strand and Waterloo Bridge so it really couldn't have got more central London than it was um but yeah it was just a, to- a total change of environment and imagine I can see how that'd be extremely overwhelming yeah it was overwhelming and it was like I said it was great and it was great fun and I think for a while I just kept going um and 
you know, and not even in a pretending to be fine kind of way. I think really I was, I was more than fine uh, for a while, but I think it just then all caught up with me. Um, but yeah, there, it, it, yeah, it was just, it was just a very big shift for me. And then, yeah, as you said, there was almost this turning point in second year when it began to catch up with you. I mean, how would, how would you, how would you talk about what that kind of turning point, what, what, what that was really about, what was happening there? Mm, It's, it's really hard uh, for me to pinpoint kind of one thing that, that did it. And I think partly it's because this sort of period of my life is, is kind of a blur in my head. Um, And it's strange. It's something, I think I, I mentioned this to you when we very first got chatting about the idea of of me coming on the podcast. Um, it's like this sort of period that I've kind of tidily tucked away in my brain. And it's not that I'm ashamed of it or I don't want to talk about it. It's just, it's just, it's, it doesn't come up naturally very often. Um, but so I think in terms of why it happened, I think that all this stuff was going on and I think I kept going and I kept going. And I think it was almost like I'd compare it in a way to burnout, but but different. Um, and then beyond the kind of beyond the university stuff, the workload. Second in my second year, I remember the workload just sort of got that much harder. Um, exams suddenly started to count for that much more. I was putting a lot of pressure on myself academically. Other factors, I was in a relationship with um, a lovely guy at the time, but who was in the army and he was posted away to Afghanistan for six months, which was for six months, which was, um, you know, another pressure and definitely a situation that I had absolutely no experience of or, or control over, um, which for someone who likes to be in control is, um, yeah, not ideal. Um and yes, I think I just, when I started to feel um, sad and a bit uh, alone, I guess, in how I was feeling, I I just felt that I had to keep going. I felt, no, you know, I'm so lucky in so many ways. Everything is on the surface going very well. So maybe if I just try and kind of ignore this, it, it will go away and it will pass. So did you feel shame for feeling sad when to the external world as you said you had it pretty good yeah I think I probably did I think yes because um I think I don't know if I would have at the time thought of it as something I was ashamed of but I think I just felt that it wasn't how I should be feeling and of course there's no there's no normal there's no way that that we all should feel at any at any moment but I just I was very conscious that on the surface I was getting good grades I I had lots of friends and I and I and everyone was continuing to kind of go out and do fun things and the you know nothing had stopped it was just that there was a change in my head and I just felt I needed to kind of I don't know, hurry myself up and just, I I think I worried that if I 
said something was wrong and I said it out loud, then I'd get left behind or I'd be deemed somehow incapable of carrying on. And that was the last thing I wanted to happen. Yeah, the thought of that is really scary to a young person who's high mm, achieving. Yeah, yes. And, and just always, I mean, there's now, if I ever uh, talk to someone younger now, my the, the main thing I say, which I still struggle with, but is just don't always look so far ahead. And my mum always used to say it to me, um, partly because, as we were talking about earlier, time just goes so quickly, but you just you just have to kind of, it's a cliche, but <laughs> live in the moment because, um, yeah, otherwise it kind of passes you by. Oh, yeah. I mean, the pressures on young people is one of the themes of my book as well. And it's something that I think society gets really wrong. And I think it's getting worse and worse mm. um, for young people. When I hear about kind of the A-level grades, they've now introduced an A-star, like I can't even imagine how stressful that is. So yeah, it's definitely a theme that I think is important to talk about because I think if anything, it's got worse than our day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, completely agree. I think the pressure on young people is it's 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 really scary um and and also we're sort of all kind of brought up to to be polite and to not to bother anyone i mean especially as as a woman i think i have felt this um you know like anyone who wakes up in the morning if you if you if you woke up in the morning and you actually stopped and you kind of you looked in the mirror and you thought okay how am I feeling very few people I think would would turn around and say yeah 10 out of 10 I'm doing great today but we're all sort of um yeah conditioned to just carry on uh and and say say we're fine and say we're fine, which is why this podcast is so great because <laughs> we're not. <laughs> well, if, if, if we go back to your university days, can you tell us a bit about how you did pretend to be fine? Mm, um, yes, I think it was just doing more of the same of what I had been doing. I I kept working. I, I remember this summer my second year summer I went and I did an internship in New York and I remember the question coming up of you know with my kind of family of oh you know do you think it's a good idea because I think it was it was become it was beginning to become clear that I was struggling um but I said no no you know this is something that's really good for me and um and I'm I'm going to enjoy it. And it, it's such a good opportunity. I think this is often the thing as well. You feel you have a chance and you have an opportunity and you don't want to waste it. Um, and so I went and I, yeah, looking back, I had a, a it, again, at times it was brilliant, but also a lot of kind of sadness around being there. And I think loneliness as well. I think even in London, in any city, I think from the outside you think people think that living in in a big city how could you possibly be lonely you're surrounded by people at all times even even when you're on the tube and even if they're strangers you're never really by yourself but sometimes that is the moment at which you can feel the loneliest when you are surrounded by strangers and that's one thing that's always got me about the Manet painting which crops up in wet paint um 
that yeah you can you can be totally surrounded and yet you can feel totally alone um but sorry i veered off from your question um yeah i just i just kept going uh and i i think i almost to prove to myself that i was fine i worked even harder and you know i i thought okay i'll i'll get out and i'll do more exercise and i'll you know live this healthy lifestyle um and it just all sort of backfired <laughs> and yeah again there's so many there's so many parallels um yeah with my own experience of doing what i call the socially acceptable numbing techniques because we're told mm. to work hard it's good for us to exercise but there's this there's this tipping point where it's not good for us and we are trying to escape something and and to me it sounds like you were battling with a, a sadness almost all the time which must have been incredibly exhausting yeah it it really it was exhausting um yes I remember uh, when I finally kind of did come out the other end um sort of thinking wow you know it's really nice not to feel sad every day <laughs> not all day every day but at some point every day and I had never, I'd never felt like that before, but even in this, you know, relatively short period of my life, so it was a year and a half, I would say, it becomes normal. Um, it's kind of almost like a habit. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was, it was hard. And I think, um, yeah, what you say about kind of the numbing and the running away from it, I think for me, that was definitely something like I started running a lot. And I think, you know, when you're running, you're kind of on, on on the move and you can kind of kid yourself that you're moving forward and you're progressing. And actually you're just like running in a loop and then you're coming back and you, you're still feeling exactly as you felt maybe with a bit of adrenaline. Um, but the same as you felt before, nothing changes in that quick run around the block. Were you pushing yourself quite hard when running? Yes, I was. Um, I think it was all about distraction. It was all about all about distraction and kind of just taking control. I think at that point in my life, so many things felt out of my control and I didn't like the way that that felt. And so anything that I could that I could take control of, I kind of grabbed with both hands and I clung to Um and and that goes with the work as well I as I said earlier I've kind of I'd always been a hard worker but it kind of went to a whole new level um and weirdly I'm sorry I'm sort of slightly skipping forward but weirdly I think that continuing with the work and continuing with my course is is in the end what got me through because I think if I had totally stopped then I would have sat with my feelings and it would have been hard to kind of climb out of the, the kind of hole that I was in. Um, so it was sort of a blessing and a curse, the work side of things and, and those those numbing techniques and the stress. I guess it's everything in moderation. <laughs> well, no, I, I really relate to that. Is if, if, if I could go back and change yeah times that I overworked would you change it because it's led you to where you are now so it's it's okay to yeah. have those complicated feelings about that time <laughs> yeah um, yeah absolutely um yeah and also just uh always looking back is 
would you have done things differently? I don't know. Um, would it have happened if I had been at university, not in London? I, I don't know, because I, I would have been the same person. Um, it's hard to say how, how big a contributing factor environment was. Um, but one thing I did used to say to my brother um, a lot when I was at university, um, because everyone, you know, it was, it was this small class and everyone was incredibly hardworking, or at least this is how I remember it. Maybe some of my university friends are going to listen to this and kind of say, mm. um, but I remember everyone being very hardworking and, yeah, I used to say to my brother, I just, you know, I, I wish there was someone, I, I wish there was someone like you there who um, would kind of remind us that there's other stuff and just almost be a bad influence. Um, yeah, that's a compliment to him. I don't know if he'd take that as a compliment. <laughs> I think he would. No, it does, it does sound like a, yeah, very pressure cooker, an intense environment, even literally being in this like big city and the galleries all, all around you, you're sort of consumed in this little artistic prestigious world but with that prestige comes pressure yes yeah exactly and and if you are already someone who is kind of prone to putting pressure on yourself then yeah there's got to be a, a kind of tipping point um yeah and there, there was two other things just to go back to when we were talking about control what I think is really interesting is a lot of us feel that we can control our work a lot more than say um maybe friendships or relationships or there are other aspects of our lives that feel a little bit bit, bit less out less in our control and actually the reality is particularly doing the sort of work me and you do work is very out of our control however <laughs> our, per <laughs> our perception is that we can control our work and I think so many people and, and I'm sure this happened during the uh, lockdowns and pandemics when people were also felt really out of control they like there's something about work where throwing oneself into it when you feel out of control in today's society feels like a very natural thing to do um yes yeah and I'm so sure people will relate to that I mean is that something you still find yourself doing yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, what you just said, because, um, you know, both of us being freelance, being a freelance is, in a way, you're in control, uh, because I suppose it's, you know, you're not working, you're not working for um, any one company who is kind of telling you what to do. Although now there are times where I think, oh, that would be quite nice just for a day, just to be told, <laughs> told what to do. But um you know, and there, there's a there's a large degree of autonomy, and I I actually do love being freelance. But yeah, for someone who likes to be totally in control of their work, um, it can be tricky because, I mean, not least when it comes to getting paid and and trying to chase your invoices, and um, it's yeah, it's it it's hard. I think um, to kind of describe totally being freelance to someone who who has never kind of done it I I would I I really would recommend it to others and I am happy I do it um but also it's similar I think the book writing is similar you are kind of opening yourself up to a lot of criticism um <laughs> any kind of writing I guess any kind of anything artistic uh, or creative you are putting work out there uh, for people to kind of 
publicly review or comment on. And it's and it's a very um, uh, strange job in that sense. You know, all of us have jobs, but not all of our jobs are kind of up for public scrutiny. And for someone, you know, someone who who, who takes things to heart, who um, yeah likes to be in control, yeah, there it's um, it's strange. <laughs> Oh yeah, because I loved I loved the controlling aspect of um, writing my narrative. So going back on my twenties, writing my story mostly just by myself in a room, and then mm. to put and then the contrast to put that out there where it's like completely out of my control for people to comment. Um, and, and another paradox is like. Um, I want people to consume it and I've created it for public consumption. But when people criticize it, I'm like, hey, that's my life. <laughs> and so I'm kind of um, not being consistent in that way. But yeah, that kind of, yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it's so exposing and it's so scary. And um, it's definitely something I'm struggling with right now. It's like that lack of control of having your thing in the world to be scrutinized. And I, and I kind of said to a friend who has a job, I was like, it's like if your feedback or review you were getting at work was played out in the public arena and also said in a really harsh manner like that's what it feels like yeah yeah oh god yeah and I mean I can't imagine because obviously I've written a novel um which is is very different I mean for you I think it's such a brave incredible thing to put out your own personal kind of story um so yeah for me uh yeah Eve does feel like a real person and I feel sort of protective of her but also it's that you know you 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 almost have to give up the book don't you when you put it out there because it's like someone asked me recently what I kind of hoped readers would take away from the book and there are definitely there really are key things that I hope readers will take away from it but also I can't be kind of hovering over people with a pen underlining the key messages for them and saying, no, no, wait, actually, <laughs> um, this is this is uh, what you should be focusing on. So yeah, you have to let go. Yes. Um, and, and yeah, that's something I'm pretending to be fine about right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> um, but if we go back, back to your, back to your, um, uh, your time at university and, um, pretending to be fine and that control we talked about so what came next when was was there a realization that something had to change Mm, I think so I think the kind of acceptance that I wasn't fine it really it took time you know and it does it takes courage in a way to stop um and think uh and kind of turn something around um and yeah you you really do have to stand still in order to 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 realize that something isn't right and to change it and I think that a big part for me was moving home so I made the decision along with kind of my family that um it was around Christmas time. So it was after that, after I had gone to New York in the summer, came back, went back to university for a term, was living with two great friends um, and, you know, wanted to be with them, but uh, got back at Christmas and just kind of thought, 
I, I should be at home. I need to be at home. And so I did that then for the rest of my final year. And I kind of can, you know, continued to go into London for my lectures and third year, you often don't have that much contact time anyway. So it worked out. Um, but I think the, I remember there being a question mark over whether I should actually take a total break. And that I think is what I was so afraid of that if I, if I kind of admitted how, um, wobbly I was feeling that I would be deemed incapable of carrying on. Um, and, and that was the last thing I wanted, you know, and I think maybe that was because a part of me did know that I had to, that it, I, would, I would be better off keeping going. And I was worried about what would happen if I completely stopped and was just left alone with kind of my thoughts and and not seeing people. Um, so yeah, it, t- it took a lot of time and then, and, and just kind of, it was about giving myself that room and that space, I think, to, to actually kind of, listen to myself listen to myself listen to my body give myself the time to um recover and not just constantly be thinking no no I I just keep going I'll just keep going there's something so beautiful about returning to home and like returning to the the womb to reset because yeah you've kind of done the perfect halfway really because I imagine it must have been really hard to decide to leave your housemates in that university life um and to be at home just kind of going in for the academic side that must have been a really difficult decision yeah it was really difficult um and you know especially because I I loved living with them they I mean they were they were and are brilliant and luckily kind of you know have <laughs> stuck by me um but it was a difficult decision. Um, but I think it became very uh, clear very quickly that it was the right one. And I think part of that was just being kind of separating myself from the from the city and kind of even if everything is quote unquote fine, and you're and you're living in a big city like London. That you know the pace is just it's totally different to um, to being in a small town or in the countryside. And I think just it sounds like such a simple thing, but just having that breather um, made a huge, huge difference for me. Um, yeah, and my mom, my mom is just a great, great all-round person so (laughs) being with her always always helps (laughs) oh that's so lovely I mean I really relate because whenever I've struggled the last couple of years and I was living until recently in Holloway but my parents live in zone three but even just going (laughs) like to zone three you know just the home and what that can represent and that breather and space as you say it's such a wonderful a wonderful thing to have um yeah and perspective I guess as well you know not um being being surrounded by different people who have different worries and different things that they are preoccupied with and and aiming for and it was just a healthy thing um I think inevitably if you're in a a smallish kind of cohort and you're all studying the same thing and you're all 
fairly academic and hardworking, it's it is that sort of pressure cooker like situation. So you know, I saw more of my brother, the one who I said I could have done with in London. Um, yeah. And and what did happen when you had that extra space? You were able to sit with your feelings a bit more. I think to begin with, um, I think to begin with, it was it was hard because I was having to face up to, you know, I suddenly had the the room to think about really how things were going. Um, and so it was difficult. Um, I think it was it was sort of yeah scary, kind of admitting admitting that everything wasn't okay, but also also like a weight was lifted, um, and you know I started going to see a therapist and speaking to someone who was kind of completely neutral also helped. Um, and, you know, having kind of that separate space where I could go and talk and then leave that space behind um, and then come back home. So, yeah, it if it was without doubt the kind of right decision to make. And I also found that when, you know, I was back in London, whether it was for a lecture or for just to see friends, I was also in a better kind of headspace. I... I I then also had more room to be fun and to to you know want to see my friends and to spend time with them and I think to be honest with them too and I remember lots of well not lots but I remember a couple of friends kind of also expressing relief that you know it's difficult when you are that age and you in a way you're still kind of kids and you don't I I you know thinking about them seeing me and thinking well she's obviously struggling but oh I don't want to ask because maybe it's awkward or it's uncomfortable um so I think it was just a big relief for everyone well thank you for sharing that story so vulnerably um how would you say looking back you'd say that that experience has shaped the person you've become today hmm it definitely it definitely has. I mean, it, it's funny because, yeah, it is this sort of um, little kind of pocket of my life that um, that is tucked away. But I think it really has shaped me, not kind of least just in, I think I'm a more empathetic person because of it. Um, and I think I've always been... Uh, someone who feels things quite you know intensely where uh whether it's you know if someone else is sad and then I'll sort of feel sad or if I'm watching something I mean um that stupid uh advert this is really embarrassing but that stupid I think it was the Lloyd's advert where there was this there's the kind of background song and it's like saying you're not alone whenever that advert used to come on I would cry not when I was not when I was you know when I was feeling totally I was about to say fine, uh, really fine. <laughs> but, you know, I've always kind of felt deeply, but I think that maybe going through something like that just gives you an added awareness um, of kind of checking in with people, you know, checking in with family and friends and also being kinder to yourself, um, which it's it's really easy to forget that, 
you know, we all need to take care of ourselves. Um, and yeah, it's, I'm still, you know, I'm still a very ambitious person and I still, um, there's a lot I want to achieve, but I also, uh, want to be healthy and kind of happy and to have that time for myself or for, you know, the people I'm closest with. So yeah, it's definitely changed me, I think. And that empathy, yeah, it certainly comes through as you conjured the character of Eve. I really felt that I was reading about someone who had, or reading something written by someone who had deep, deep ability to empathize. So that certainly comes through in your work as well. Oh, thank you. Well, that's really lovely to hear. Our final question. Um, Pretending to be fine is something most of us, because actually we've had some guests who uh, have managed to cleanse their lives of pretending to be fine, but um, (laughs) most of us do on a daily basis. Um, Is there a small way that you've done that uh, recently that you could share? Yes. um, I'm in awe of those guests who no longer pretend to be fine. How do they do it? That could be a whole Uh, new series. Yeah, a whole new series. (laughs) Bring them back. I know. Yes, Yes, can you? I could learn a lot. No, I think, um, you know, obviously we've been talking about this particular stage in my life, um, but I don't think the way that we use those words, you know, I'm fine, really changes as we get older. And I think it's kind of, it's a way of protecting others. It's a way of protecting ourselves. But the the example, anyway, the example that um, springs to mind for me and it's something that I think happens all the time is, you know, when say you're sending a work email or receiving a work email, the opening question more often than not, well, if it's a question, it's how are you or it's hope you're well. And it's the same when you're messaging friends or friends are messaging you. And, you know, there's not really time uh, or space to say, oh, well, actually, you know, I, I haven't things haven't been great, this is going on. Um, so, so the stock answer is always, yeah, all well, thank you, or yes, all fine with me. Um, and I don't really know the way that we change that. <laughs> um, but it's obviously, a, it's a politeness thing. It's a kind of, we feel as if we have to get that in there before we can get to the point of the, you know, the reason why we're messaging. But I think, yeah, it, it will take um, all of us changing and kind of learning from a very young age that it's okay for us to answer with something else and also that it's important to ask the question genuinely um, before that can that can change yeah I think I think in the work email context that would require people slowing down and actually having yes. time to engage with someone um, and because the only okay answer to that in like the working world is like yeah busy yeah you exactly yeah we're so busy um (laughs) whereas if you need space for someone to be like oh I've just moved house I've got this really embarrassing zoom background like blah 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 you kind of need to move more slowly um in your working life and we need to create space I think yeah yeah I think you're absolutely right um and by the way Tiffany has a great zoom background um it's a Hokusai wave looks brilliant there on the wall um but yes I think you're right we just yeah it's about slowing down definitely well thank you so much for coming on to the show um we will put your incredible book in the show notes and um everyone who's listening 
buy it, read it. It's a brilliant read, as we've said. And where else can people continue to follow you, Chloe? So I am on Twitter and Instagram at Chloe L. Ashby. Um, I also have a website, chloeashby.com, which I keep fairly up to date with kind of writing that I've done. So yeah, come find me. Um, And thank you, Tiffany. This was really fun. So lovely to chat. So good to chat. Thank you so much.